0: Why is it so hard to talk to people about climate change? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. It turns
1: out that about three quarters of people in the whole U.S. don't even hear somebody else talk about climate change more than once or twice a year. And if we don't talk about it, why would we care? If we don't care, why would we act? So action begins with the conversation.
0: On today's program, how to start those difficult conversations. Catherine Hayhoe has been called an evangelist for climate science, using patience, empathy, and faith to spread the word about global warming. Her special gift, finding ways to connect with those who may be resistant to her message
1: could both be hunters, or birders, or hikers, you live in the same place, or you care about your kids, you served in the armed forces, or you go to a similar type of church. The point is making that shared connection first, and then walking together to connect the dots to why both of you, because you are that same type of person who shares that same interest or value, would naturally care about a changing climate.
0: Catherine Hayhoe is director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She is also the recipient of this year's Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Science Communication, presented by Climate One. Greg Dalton's other guest today is Noah Diffenbaugh, Professor of Atmospheric Science at Stanford, a Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment, and a lead author with the IPCC. Here's their conversation.
2: Catherine Hayhoe. I hear a lot about, as a host of a talk show, that we need more than talk. We need climate action. And yet you say that talking about climate is actually meaningful and something people should do more of. So how can talk be so important?
1: Well, when you look at the data, it turns out that about three quarters of people in the whole U.S. don't even hear somebody else talk about climate change more than once or twice a year. And if we don't talk about it, why would we care if we don't care why would we act so action begins with the conversation
2: and then why aren't people talking about it then is, is it self you know, there's a term of socially constructed silence is it like sex and politics where you don't want to talk about it because it's difficult why
1: well they're looking at that because we want to know right and some of it is we're afraid it's going to start a fight. Climate change is one of the most politically polarized topics in the entire United States. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes when I live in Texas, and occasionally if I don't want to get into it with anybody, when they say, what do you do? I say, I work at Tech. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time I don't, but sometimes I do. You know, at the grocery store, that's not where you really want to have an argument over the cantaloupes. (laughs) But part of it, too, is because often that conversation might just be depressing, and who wants to talk about an apocalyptic scenario where you don't feel like there's anything you can do about it? And then, also, often people feel like they don't know enough to talk about it. I mean, it's a super complicated topic that you use things like large ensembles to study, you have to understand words like stochastic and nonlinear and things like that. And so we kind of shy away from it because we feel like it's just something that those giant eggheads talk about. It's not something that relates to my life personally. So there's a lot of barriers, I think, to having those conversations. And we are here to break those barriers down tonight. Um. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Let's also talk about the myths. What are some of the biggest myths about climate change?
1: Well, if we read the news, which most of us do, whether we like it or not. If you ever feel that way, you don't want to see what the news says, but you kind of, yeah, you kind of look at it anyways. We're pretty convinced that the biggest myth is that science is somehow a matter of opinion or optional. But that isn't the biggest myth when it comes to climate change. The biggest myth that the largest number of people have bought into, people who disagree with the science and people who agree with the science, is the myth that the impacts don't matter to me. They're about future generations, or the polar bear, or people who live far away. But the solutions do matter to me, and I don't like them. They are going to disrupt my comfortable life. They're going to be unpleasant. They may even be punitive. They could ruin the economy. Next thing you know, the government's going to be setting my thermostat. So we view the solutions as a greater threat than the impacts, whereas in actual fact, it's exactly the opposite. There are many beneficial solutions that can increase the quality of life, but the impacts are here today and they're bad.
2: But people see the costs like I see how much if I'm going to buy cleaner electricity or change my diet or change my car, I see the consequences and the costs. The costs are local and personal. Mm -hmm. The benefits sometimes tend to be far away and more diffuse. So and in the future. So that cost benefit is Mm -hmm. problematic. What can we do about that?
1: That's why we need everybody, not just us scientists, because we are really good at diagnosing the problem. We can understand what is happening, why it's happening, just how bad it is, how much worse it's going to get in the future. But we're not the ones who can fix this. We need engineers. We need urban planners. We need people who understand how to manage our lands, how to grow our food, how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere, how to change our attitudes and the way we live. We need everybody on board to fix this thing. It's not just up to us.
2: So today, Catherine Hayhoe is receiving the Stephen Schneider Award for Climate Communication at Climate One. And Stephen Schneider is a late a uh, Stanford climate scientist who was an early advisor to Climate One. He passed away in 2010, and this award was created in his memory. Steven Schneider's son, Adam, is continuing the work of his, in his father's field, but from a unique angle. Adam W. Schneider is an environmental archaeologist and historian at the University of Colorado. He studies societal responses to climate change throughout ancient history.
3: It's really important that we understand science is meant to serve humanity. It's not just something that we do in a vacuum for fun. It's got to have a function that's beyond just doing research for its own sake. One thing that my father strongly believed was that science is as much about morality as it is an intellectual endeavor. He strongly believed that the core of good science can be summed up with the old cliché telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what I'll say about Catherine Hayhoe is that I think she takes that ethical principle even further by being willing to tell the truth not just about the work of Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, climate scientist, but also what matters to Catherine Hayhoe, the human being. To be willing to talk about Christian values and climate science together at all, even with your colleagues, is something that would take courage. But in an age where both faith and science have been weaponized by various political and economic interests... To bring the two together in her public outreach efforts in com- about combating climate change, whether we're talking about media interviews, town hall meetings, or direct contact with non-scientists through the often brutal public arena that's Twitter and other social media platforms, I think that's going a step further. And to me, it takes a person of rare character to be willing to put not just your work, but yourself on the line for something you believe in. And Catherine, I think, is one of those people.
2: That was Steven Schneider's son, Adam W. Schneider. Adam W. Schneider is an environmental archaeologist and historian at the University of Colorado. Noah Biffenbaugh, you came to Stanford uh, just shortly before Steve Schneider died. He, you were both Stanford professors. Tell us your take on the impact that Steven Schneider and Catherine Hayhoe as science communicators. What have they impacted the, the role of scientists as communicators?
4: Yes. Yeah, so I mean, Steve was I mean, first and foremost, he was he was an incredible scientist and he was also uh, you know, an incredibly talented communicator. And I think he would have been an, an incredibly talented communicator, whether he was a scientist or not. Right. He was I mean, he was he was great at communicating. So, yeah, there's a there's a long list of um, you know, metaphors and, and analogies and quips that um, Steve pioneered. I mean, I think that things that we kind of take for granted in in the lexicon around climate change. Uh, and to me, Catherine, you've really been um, you know, a shining example of carrying that forward. Um, I mean, I I intersected with your science first um, and you know, certainly the 2004 paper on on climate change in California, which is for those of you in the room um, who weren't reading the scientific literature in 2004, um, <laughs> you know, was, was really the, uh, <laughs> the seminal paper on, on the future of climate change in California. Um, and Catherine, Catherine led that study with, um, Steve and Chris Field and, and others. And, uh, so that to me really, um, as someone who was working on climate change in California at the time, you know, that, that, that had a huge impact. And so I think, you know, Catherine has really, um, been a shining light, not, only in her public communication, but really I think what the the core of, of successful communication about climate change is is really being grounded in in the science and really being on the cutting edge in real time. That's really the you know what provides that foundation for the for the communication.
2: We're talking about climate change and communication at Climate One with Noah Diffenbaugh, professor at Stanford, and Catherine Hayho, director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. I'm Greg Dalton. Catherine Hayo, uh, climate is often framed as a moral issue. You specialize in, in reaching you know, faith communities, evangelicals. And tell us about the theological evangelicals and the political evangelicals and how they have different views on climate.
1: Well, first of all, building off what Noah said, I think that the single greatest description of climate change is the one that the military came up with. And that is that climate change is a threat multiplier. So in other words, the only reason we care about a one or a two or a three degree warming of the temperature of the planet is because it affects all of the issues that we are already struggling with today. So when I speak to people, I think the most important thing to do is to connect with whatever The issues are that they already care about. It's not a case of needing new values. It's a case of saying, getting to know people, figuring out where they're at. And then it is very rare to meet a human being who does not already have a key value or part of their identity that does not connect directly to concern over a changing climate. Sometimes it takes, you know, a lot of getting to know each other, but That connection is there. And so for myself as a Christian, um, I mean, part of the reason why I do what I do is because climate change exacerbates humanitarian issues. And it is just absolutely not fair when you look at the impact it's having on the poorest and most disenfranchised people in the world. I have a slight handicap. I faint at the sight of blood. So a medical career was out of the question. I figured climate change is the next best thing, right? (laughs) So people often say, well, you know, how do you talk to, to, um, you know, people at church? Well, I don't start by like pulling out the IPCC reports and whacking people upside the head with them. <laughs> Sometimes we feel slightly tempted to do that, but that's not a very effective way to communicate. Do you try that in your class? Maybe
4: I, I don't touch anyone <laughs> ever. True. True. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. So this method is good for more than one reason. (laughs) But rather, start the conversation with what you have in common. So if, if, We are theological evangelicals, which are people who take the Bible seriously. Evangelical is a very difficult term to define. So I actually asked the head of the National Association of Evangelicals a couple of years ago, what is your definition? And he said, people who take the Bible seriously. I said, good definition. So if you take the Bible seriously, you know that at the very beginning of the Bible, it talks about how humans have been given responsibility over every living thing on this earth, which includes our brothers and sisters who are less fortunate than us. Then all through the Bible, it talks about God's love and care for creation, for nature. And then it talks a lot about caring for others who are less fortunate than us, the poor, the widows, the orphans, sharing what we have with people in need. And then right at the end of the Bible, there is a zinger that very few people have read. And it specifically says, God will destroy those who destroy the earth. That's the book of Revelation. So there's a lot that you can talk about. But in today's world... (laughs) Don't go straight to Revelation, okay? (laughs) It's at the end for a reason. (laughs) Um, In today's world, though, the word evangelical is used in a very different way. It's used for political evangelicals. And my definition of a political evangelical is someone whose statement of faith is written first by their political ideology, only a distant second by the Bible, and if the two come into conflict as they frequently do, they will go with their political ideology over what it says in the Bible. So that's why it's so important to distinguish between the two.
2: And you also talk about, uh, you know, we're in this fact, uh, I don't know, post-fact world, uh, climate. There's lots of facts flying back and forth. And talk about the the importance of facts and identity. Mm
1: -hmm. So when you ask people, do you agree with the simple facts that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are serious, The number one predictor of whether people will agree with those facts, the scientific facts that we've known that date back to the 1850s, it's not how much education people have, it's not how much they know about the science, it's not how smart they are. Actually, the smarter we are, the better we are at cherry-picking information to validate our pre-existing opinions.
2: A lot of deniers are highly intelligent.
1: Yep. The single most important predictor is simply where we fall on the political spectrum. So it has become a matter of identity to say, oh, I don't agree with all that stuff. And that's why, again, it's so important to begin our conversations with identity, with a value, with a part of people's identity that they already have, that is good, that we can honestly at least um, admire, if not actually you know, agree with and share. And then from that position of shared values, walk together, connecting the dots to why, since we are both the type of person who cares about, you could both be hunters or birders or hikers, you live in the same place, or you care about your kids, or, um, you know, you served in the armed forces, or you go to a similar type of church, or you know, there's a million points of connection that you could have. The point is making that shared connection first and then walking together to connect the dots to why both of you, because you are that same type of person who shares that same interest or value, would naturally care about a changing climate.
2: Catherine, I want to ask you about evangelical colleges. There's some reach go- research going on involving your dad and how people can be persuaded um, f- to, to change their views on, on climate. Tell us about that research.
1: Yeah. So I was invited a couple of years ago to come speak to a small college in upstate New York called Houghton College, which is two hours away from anywhere down a dirt road. They said, we'd like you to come not just to speak, but we actually want to start running some experiments. And I said, oh, tell me more. They said, we want to test to see if your talks actually make a difference. I said, yes, I want to know that too, because if they don't, I quit. (laughs) I really do want to know. And then so we, we started to talk about it, and they said, what I would also like to know is whether it matters if I'm there in person or if it's a video, right? So we organized the whole thing, and the day before, I recorded my presentation as exact word-to-word as I possibly could. And then as the students arrived, they were first of all given a short version of the Six Americas of Global Warming questionnaire to kind of see where they, where they stood on climate science impacts and solutions. Then they were funneled into one of two rooms where they either got fake me or live me, And then they, no, flat me and 3D me. Let's just call it that. And then they were tested afterwards to see if they changed their opinion about anything. And the results were incredibly positive. It turns out that there were statistically significant differences on almost any question, and it didn't matter if it was flat me or 3D. So out of that, that's where I started our global weirding series on PBS, which you can find on YouTube, because I figured, hey, a lot more people are going to watch that. Than me, you know, going around to all these different places. So then they wanted to try to analyze the statistics, and they said, Well, can you help? I said, Well, I'm the subject, so I sort of feel a little conflicted about actually analyzing the data. It's like asking the lab rat to do the analysis for you. <laughs> but I said, Fortunately, my father is actually a science educator, um, and he that's what that's what he did for his PhD, and that's what he does for his research. So I passed them along to him. And then they they started to expand the scope where they took these videos and, and they showed them to three different Christian colleges. One where the student population was very conservative in the heart of Texas. One where they were kind of middle of the road, upstate New York, again, different students. And one over the border in Ontario where climate change really isn't a political issue. But all three were theologically kind of at the same level. So politically and their perspectives on climate change, they started from very different places. Texas, upstate New York, Ontario. All watched the same video. The only difference was there was info specifically about their geographic location. And then they were tested at the end. And you know what happened? Every single group moved up to the same level. So you know what that said to me? It said to me, there's a reason I'm in Texas.
2: Catherine, you have about 100,000 followers on Twitter, um, very active, and yet you also mute people. So tell us how you decide to mute people, how far far you'll go to engage people, and then when you decide to.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I'm going to be more specific. I block people. Mm -hmm. And the reason I block them is because if you mute someone, they can still follow your thread and comment Mm -hmm. on them, and you can't see it. Uh. Whereas, if you block them, they can't follow your thread and comment on them. And as Noah pointed out, in social media, the negative voices are the loudest voices. They come from a very small part of the population. 10% of the population is dismissive. And of that 10%, the vast majority of them lurk on the comment sections and on social media, waiting to suck your time and energy like a black hole. So, what I do is, my rule is, I block, I don't block for people's opinions on science. You know, it's a free world. I block if they are demonstrating an inability to converse in a civil and constructive manner.
2: Have you ever met some of these people face to face? And have you ever, ever persuaded or changed someone's mind?
1: Um, I know that I have changed people's minds because we've been doing these experiments where we actually have data, which is awesome.
2: But how about meeting people face-to-face? believe. They...
1: But, yes, with my, de- my personal definition of a dismissive, you can tell I like definitions. My definition of a dismissive is somebody who, if an angel from God appeared in front of them with tablets of stone saying global warming is real in foot-high letters of flame, they still would not change their minds. <laughs> So why would I think I can change their minds? My focus is not on the 10% who are dismissive. My focus is on the people who are disengaged or doubtful, the people who are cautious, they're not quite sure. They often lead with their doubts, so we mistake them for dismissive, but they're leading with their doubts because they want answers to what they've heard on their favorite media station, or a politician or a leader who they trust. And so with these people, we absolutely can change minds. And one of my favorite tweets, once in a while I save the really good tweets for when I'm having a bad day, one of my favorite tweets um, comes from a fellow Canadian who says, you dragged my sorry deniers to the truth.
2: LAUGHTER We're talking about climate and communication at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton with Catherine Hayhoe, director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. Noah Diffenbaugh, professor of atmospheric science at Stanford University. We're going to go to our lightning round. True or false for Catherine Hayhoe. You sometimes get depressed about the hard truth of the climate math.
1: I wouldn't be a scientist if I didn't.
2: Uh, True or false, uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, Stanford's Earth Sciences Department floats on oil money.
4: Um, I I would say there's a lot of um, really cutting-edge research uh, about the way the climate system works that's been funded uh, through endowment that uh, came from oil money. Um,
2: Catherine Hayhoe, as a Christian, you can summon love for the Koch brothers and other climate deniers. (laughs)
1: um as the saying goes I love you but I don't like you (laughs) no so in in all seriousness though I don't I don't really feel it's a matter of me somehow trying to drum up the love because I am never going to be able to do that on my own the feeling that I have is that the love has to come from God because it's not something that I physically personally or emotionally am capable of
2: True or false, Noah Diffenbaugh, it's easier for you to speak from your head than your heart. True at climate one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, speaking from the heart is an unnatural act for many scientists, especially the men.
1: Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The first time when I finally realized that to, to, to connect with people, I had to share with them why I cared, not just all this data and facts and charts, but actually what was in my heart, it was as scary as pulling down my pants on stage. It scared me to talk about what, like, emotions mm-hmm. and feelings related to climate change. We're not trained to do that. In fact, we're trained not to do that. So I'm going to, I'm going to go without the... Um, gender the, gen- thing. the gender okay, all right, but, um, I'm just going to um, say it's across the board right.
2: Noah Diffenbaugh true or false fossil fuels have improved the human condition true association <laughs> just going to mention a, a person place or thing and you tell me the first thing that pops into your mind uh, unfiltered uh, Catherine Hayhoe what comes to your mind when I say Carl Sagan telescope Noah and Diffenbaugh President Trump's White House science advisor who is it uh, <laughs>
1: Uh, Kelvin Drugmeyer. <laughs> he, he,
2: he didn't have one for two years. Uh, Kelvin, great name for a scientist, mm-hmm. right? Kelvin uh, Drugmeyer was confirmed by the Senate on January 3rd, 2019. All right, let's end it there. Let's thank thank them for getting through the lightning round. We're talking about climate science and communication at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton with Catherine Hayhoe and Noah Diffenbaugh. Catherine Hayhoe, uh, a lot of the climate conversation, you mentioned earlier that the government's going to set my thermostat. A lot of the conversation, people feel bad because of what they eat, or what they drive. So get us to the shame and should part of the climate conversation, which I think is so much is a real hang up for a lot of people.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I've talked to, you know, a farmer in West Texas who thinks it's all a natural cycle, but he'll look at me and he'll say, "I know I drive a big truck, but I need the truck." So even still we have this sense of we're using these resources. I was at a meeting once with other faith leaders and I'll never forget one of the people in the room turned to everybody else and he said, You know, every time you turn on a car, you're sinning. And you know how that made me feel? I want to go find the biggest hummer I could and just turn it on and just drive circles around them. Because I was like, okay, so I got here to this meeting. You're saying that was a sin. I live in a place where there's no public transport, so going to work is a sin. My child's sick. I take him to the hospital. That's a sin. Thank you very much. It was the most frustrating and infuriating reaction, and that made me realize, wow, <laughs> that's what we all feel when we're told you can't do this, and you shouldn't do this, you're a bad person for that. And so I really appreciate that you asked the question, and we even have a global weirding video specifically about this, the question about fossil fuels. And I would just like to say, I am grateful for fossil fuels. Yes. I would not be here today if it were not for fossil fuels. Fossil fuels freed women from unspeakable drudgery. Fossil fuels actually helped end slavery in this country, and fossil fuels brought us all the benefits of modern life that we enjoy today, but just like a child that grows beyond formula, in the same way we too are already growing and must grow even faster beyond fossil fuels, and we can do so because of the benefits that they brought us.
2: Catherine, another part of the climate conversation is voluntary virtuous restraint. Less meat, less air travel, a little more of this. Is that going to get us there? Is that necessary and insufficient? Or is that kind of are we deluding ourselves to if we think that going vegan is going to create the kind of change on the scale that's required?
1: Uh, no, it won't. And um, a very distant second after people who don't accept the science of climate change, very distant second, the most amount of attacks I get on social media are from vegans who think that it will solve the climate crisis and they don't like it when I say I actually crunch the numbers on methane emissions and it won't. Does that mean it's pointless? No, it doesn't mean it's pointless. In fact, individually, depending on our lifestyle, for many of us, the most important thing we can do is eat lower down the food chain, reduce food waste, look at a plant-based diet. But individual choices are not gonna fix this thing. Depending on how you crunch the numbers, individual choices are only gonna take us 30, maybe max 40% of the way there. The bottom line is we have to completely change the way our entire society gets its energy from fossil fuels. And that means that every option has to be on the table. It is not, I will do only this and this will fix the world. There is no, I will do only this. And so that's why one of my personal favorite encouraging resources is Project Drawdown. You guys heard of Project Drawdown? Mm -hmm. Okay. There, there's a book right there. So what they did was they went through, they said correctly, there's no silver bullet, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. And they went through and they listed a hundred different solutions. And some of these solutions are very surprising. Reducing food waste is is near the top because we throw a third of our food away. Well, you know, that's something that's pretty simple that I can do personally in my life, but I can also advocate for it in the community. Education of women and girls, of course, is one of my absolute favorites on the list. There's a lot of smart soil management, putting carbon back in the soil, smart agricultural practices. And so getting back to your original question... In our community, we fly a lot. For most of us, the biggest part of our carbon footprint is flying, and so there's, there's you know, flying less, don't fly. I said, you know what? I'm not about less, I'm about smart. Let's eat smart, let's live smart, let's travel smart, let's get our energy in smart ways. Let's do this in a way that's better. It's not about returning ourselves voluntarily to medieval times. I'm not a big fan of medieval reenactments. I always wonder what would happen if you go back and they break your glasses. (laughs) Have you thought about that, if you're blind as a bat? It's not about going back to medieval times, it's about moving forward into the future, and to do so we have to do everything smarter. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because it really is better for us, it's better for our health, it's better for our pocketbook, it's better for the world too.
2: No different bother has been uh, some alarming news recently about Arctic um, tipping points in, in in the Arctic and greenland Tell, explain to us what that means I, m- I remember you know Stephen Schneider um, at Climate One in two thousand and ten He actually introduced his final book at Climate one. He said there are tipping points out there, but we won't know where they are until we 're fifty years past them mm. which Chills me to this day. But tell us about what recently about Arctic tipping points and what it what it might mean for sea level rise.
4: Yeah, so global sea level rise is very clear. Uh, It's it's happening, and we're already experiencing increased risks from um, storm surge flooding. For example, the uh, flooding during Superstorm Sandy um, was about twice as likely with the sea level rise that's happened than if there had not been sea level rise. So just elevating the floor on which that storm surge is occurring has has already increased the risk of of flooding during landfalling storms. So we're already living with mm-hmm. the impacts of sea level rise, not to mention the sunny day flooding and um, managed retreat that's already happening. And most of what we've experienced so far has been thermal expansion from from the ocean water getting warmer. And now we're, we're entering into a regime where uh, the loss of land ice is really uh, contributing to to further sea level rise. Um, so there's a lot of potential sea level rise that's locked on land or has been locked on land in the form of these large ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, and I think what's been consistently clear, uh, certainly over the last decade, is that uh, as we as we in the scientific community and I, I do not study ice sheets, so I, that's the totally Royal we um, as the people who are studying ice sheets, uh, you know, continue to study them and learn more. You know, that uh, increased understanding continues to push the likelihood of of rapid loss of land ice uh, higher. You know, the probabilities are getting higher the more that the more that we understand about those processes. And we're certainly conducting a global experiment for which we you know, don't have any Previous example to look back on, we can look at paleoclimate periods where uh, the earth has been warmer there 's been less ice on land, or in some cases no ice on land sea levels was much higher during those periods. Uh, the rate of change in terms of the forcing in terms of the the increase in greenhouse gas concentrations was much slower than what we 're conducting now, so we 're observing. A, a once in a lifetime uh, experiment once in a geologic lifetime yeah. experiment we're right. observing it in real time and certainly the uh in terms of you know whether or not uh, the the commonwealth club of california will continue to you know have its front door above sea level um here in this beautiful new location uh that that remains to be seen let's go to our audience
2: questions welcome to climate one I'm Felix Kramer. Hi. Uh, We go back to that last question, which was about Arctic ice, and I'm wondering if we can talk about what happens if in the next 10 years we have black water instead of sea ice not reflecting the sun uh, and how you think the relative importance of that to other challenges right now. And I'd love to hear from Catherine as well on that. Thank you. So the idea that there's less ice bouncing heat back uh, into the
4: atmosphere... I guess I would challenge uh, a lot of, I'm noticing a lot of distinguished colleagues in the room, uh, fantastic scientists in the room. I would challenge anyone in the room or uh, watching on public television or listening on the radio or on the podcast or following along on Twitter to (laughs) come up with... A, a change in the Earth's system over the last three decades uh, that is more rapid and more steep than, than the loss of, of Arctic sea ice. I have not seen it. Uh, the signal-to-noise ratio is, is phenomenal. And we're now in a regime in the Arctic where you know, the highest, largest extent of sea ice is, is well below what the lowest extent was you know 30 years ago so uh, it, it's been phenomenal statistically it's been phenomenal um environmentally it's been phenomenal for ge- for geopolitics right i mean we're seeing um you know whether it's um mineral resources or um or territory uh you know there's a big it, it's wide open right now so in terms of the global energy balance um you know there's certainly a, a loss of, of reflective ice uh, i think the you know, where the real, Real uh, one of the interesting areas of research right now is what the effect on the atmospheric circulation is from that rapid loss of of sea ice, and in particular here in in California and um, other parts of the middle latitudes. Uh, you know what what impact that has. Ben Santer is here and has uh, you know done really nice work recently showing that um, that loss of Arctic sea ice kind of promotes. Uh, high atmospheric pressure uh, in the Northeast Pacific that, that blocks the storms from uh, reaching California. Hmm.
2: So, Catherine Hayhoe, I hear the, the cooler at the top of the world is in trouble. And when I hear things Noah Diffenbaugh say, this is faster than anything else we've seen, I get a lump in my stomach.
1: Yeah. The the science is, is not what gives us hope. And um, as... <laughs>
4: It's the scientists.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. So, so as some of you may know, I am an atmospheric scientist, but I am a professor in a political science department. You may ask why. The answer is because climate change is the most political science <laughs> in Texas. Um, but because of that, I get to work with all kinds of great colleagues who know a lot of things that I don't know. And so last year, I wrote a paper with a colleague who's an expert in energy resource and subgovernmental theory. Now, I didn't even know there was such thing as subgovernmental theory until we started working together, and it was fascinating. So we wrote this paper that was published in Environmental Research Letters last year, and it's open source. so You can read it if you want, where he argued very compellingly that the most dangerous feedback in the climate system is in the Arctic, but it's not the sea ice, it's the exposure to the massive fossil fuel resources that will come when that sea ice melts. Because extraction of those resources would mean the absolute and utter failure of the Paris Agreement. So the Arctic seems far removed, but the Arctic really is the key to our future.
2: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
3: Hi, I'm Min Kaufman. And Catherine Hayhoe, what gave you the courage to go speak to other people about climate change?
2: Hey, Mint, how old are you? I'm 11. Thanks for being here.
1: So my very favorite global weirding episode on YouTube is called I'm Just One Kid, What Can I Do? And when we were researching that, we started to look into all the stuff that kids are doing, and you guys are amazing. It is just incredible to hear about all the cool things that kids are doing, very brave things. I mean, kids are suing the federal government. Imagine how nerve wracking that is! Kids are inventing new technology. They're growing algae under their beds and turning it into biofuel, which is just incredible.
2: Oh, that's what's under their beds. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> a few socks, the algae, like the biofuel.
2: It looks like mold to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, but what gave me the courage? I'm glad you asked that because it's tough to stand up and talk about this stuff. What gave me the courage was recognizing that the people who are suffering the greatest impacts don't have a voice. And so if I have a voice, I want to use it on their behalf.
4: Hi, my name is Wayne. Uh, Catherine, we're in a climate emergency. We have maybe a decade or two to get off fossil fuels, or we're going to blow past climate tipping points. How do you talk about climate to your evangelicals as if it's a real emergency, as if a kid is grabbing for a bottle of poison and about to drink it. You wouldn't say, well, we should think about whether that's a good thing to do or not. How do you talk about this is an emergency, a climate emergency?
1: Thank you. Um, Well, first of all, I I talk to a lot of people. Um, It's not, you know, I talk to water managers and farmers and ranchers and the women's club and the book club and the Qantas club. And what I've found is that when we go in saying it's the end of the world as we know it, people tune right out. Because if it's the end of the world, if we have to change everything we know about within a fixed deadline, why even bother? So um, we did a global reading episode on messaging with fear versus hope, and on one side, you know, we're scientists, we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to like pretend that things aren't bad, they are bad. Sea levels rising twice as fast now as it was 25 years ago. We're seeing these studies coming out that each study almost it seems like is worse than the one before. But at the same time, fear is not going to motivate the long term sustained action. We need to fix this thing. Fear is an emotion that helps us run faster than the bear. Or, as we learn in Canada, run faster than the person beside you. There's <laughs> only going to get one person. That's not what we need to fix this. We don't need an apocalyptic vision of the future that's just going to make us want to climb into bed and pull the covers over our heads. I had a colleague share with me, and this was in Texas, that she couldn't even bring up the words climate change in her class because people would have panic attacks in her class. That is not going to help us fix this problem. What we need is rational hope rational in that we understand the magnitude of the problem that we have, but hope in that we are motivated by the vision of a better future. And if you ask me, what's the biggest thing we're missing right now? I would say we're missing a vision of a better future.
2: I recently interviewed some psychologists up here who agree with you on fear, but they say that just pushing it aside and pretending it's not there and having kind of fake hope, you know, or contrived hope is not authentic hope. So you got to hold that fear and then kind of work through it. And then you get to the real hope that really fuels you forward. But just kind of bearing that fear doesn't, faking it doesn't work. Let's go to our next question.
3: Hi, Andy Gunther. I'm an environmental scientist here in the Bay Area. Hi, Catherine. I could not think of anyone more deserving of this award than you. Congratulations. I wanted to ask you, we've all been at this for a long time, climate education. You have the cred to speak in places that you've described that, that would never want to hear from me. And I'm wondering whether you can talk about the kind of change that you have seen in the more conservative audience that you've talked to, say, over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's change, what does it look like um, that, that you've noticed?
1: Yeah, so the, I've been in Texas now for over 10 years, and I absolutely have witnessed change. The change is, is that people and organizations who would not give me the time of day 10 years ago, who would, as they say, as they say you know, cross the other side of the street... To avoid me, Um, those people are now so concerned over the changes that they are seeing happening in the places where they live and the way that it is affecting their livelihood and their local environment that they are calling me and asking me to come speak to groups, which 10 years ago the door would not just have been shut, it would have been triple locked with a big keep out, you climate scientist, on the door. So um, I've, I've been to talk to ag groups. So, you know, if you think an evangelical college is conservative, you have not met an ag group in Texas. (laughs) Ag groups are calling me now, or the oil and gas industry is calling. People who own large amounts of land want to know, should we be selling? What are we supposed to be doing with this? So there is significant movement. And when people come to ask you, that's when the door is open. That's when, The time has come to figure out what do you have in common? What are the values you can start with? And where can you go together? Because knocking on the door rarely yields positive constructive outcomes. But when that door is cracked open and you're cautiously invited in by one person, and then everybody else in the room is giving Joe the evil eye, because why did Joe invite this climate scientist? But you're in the room. That's when positive things can happen. And they absolutely are happening in Texas. And if they can happen in the west part of Texas, they can pretty much happen anywhere in the country
2: let's go to our next question okay. how do we shift this conversation to even if we stop today we would be beyond potentially okay so how can we switch the conversation where people still need to cut but yes we need to actually geoengineer we need a carbon sequestration
4: carbon re- removal whatever you want to call it why is that not the clarion call let's get the carbon out of there let's put it out of the environment maybe in a rock or somewhere else why isn't that the number
2: one thing we're talking about? We don't have to be sinning to drive your SUV. You can be offsetting that, or putting rock, or putting other sequestration methods, offsets, etc. Why isn't that the number
3: one thing we
1: talk about? When
3: it becomes less political, because we're just that's another bill we pay as our offset for the month.
4: Catherine's looking at me. Uh, well, ahead. well,
1: first of all, I would say um, people are absolutely starting to talk about it, and I think we need to be talking about it. But it's not like an indulgence where you pay for your sins. We have to do both. We don't have the luxury anymore of saying we can produce as much carbon as we want and just suck it back out. But I am personally very excited by the work of of organizations like the Swiss Climeworks that's working with David Keith, where they've actually sucked carbon out of the atmosphere and they've turned it into fuel. How amazing is that? Or they've turned it, like you said, into rock. Or, again, there is a lot of regenerative agriculture techniques where you can put carbon into the soil where it's actually good for the soil and we want it in the soil. So the answer is yes, but the answer is also yes to cutting carbon as soon as possible. The answer is we need pretty much everything on the table. And with geoengineering specifically, often people use it only to refer to solar radiation management as opposed to all different types of geoengineering. Part of the challenge we've run into in the scientific community is, nobody wants to even pay for studies to figure out, does it work? What are the side effects? So the thing I'm most afraid of is that some country that has the technical ability could do something really invasive to stave off climate change. It'd be like giving an experimental drug to the entire planet at the same time without knowing really what all the side effects are because people are too afraid to fund the scientists actually just research and study this. so We understand. What do you think?
4: <laughs> yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I've heard a lot of strong statements before the question mark of the questions and I and it's just I, mean, I think I think I think a lot of the statements are stronger than the than the evidence um, on really on both in terms of the the implications of different levels of global warming and the the potential side effects of geoengineering, I think if you know, so there certainly are thresholds in the climate system. And, and, um, you know, as Greg was saying earlier, you know, Steve Schneider used to say, we well, you know, we're not really going to know where those tipping points are until we've already passed them. Um, and I think that's the science bears that out. Um, and, you know, the, the a lot of my work over the last few years has been on trying to understand the impacts of, you know, between 1.5 degrees and two degrees or two degrees and and the the national commitments that put us more at 2.7. Right. And there's a lot of interesting nuance there. And, uh, you know, we, I think we have to keep in mind that um, fossil fuels have really driven the, um, you know, the, the lifestyle that we all, uh, you know, are, that's gotten us into this room now. And, and, you know, there are billions of people on planet earth that don't have access to that. And um, that again, whether it's a, whether you take an ethical view or a practical view, that there's a lot of momentum towards further uh, energy use. And I think you know, we don't have an alternative right now that could supply the global the whole world, the whole global population with the, the energy that's necessary for human well-being. And so the, you know, to me, the, the real challenge is how do we ensure that the world has access to the to the energy resources that are necessary for high quality human life? never mind getting out of abject poverty? And how do we do that in a way that, that minimizes the impacts on the climate system?
2: Also mentioned we have entire podcasts on geoengineering, going carbon negative. We did a whole thing on carbon sequestration, putting it in. You can look at our podcast for that. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Catherine Hayhoe, um, what, do you think, what kind of political argument will it, or scientific will it take to persuade the, na- the leaders of powerful nations to accept climate change and global warming? Great question. Well, unfortunately,
1: um, most of them have accepted it, except for the U.S. <laughs> and some in Australia and Brazil. So it's actually, you know, it's kind of spreading. Um, unfortunately, I think the political argument is people have to say, I'm not going to vote for you. That's where it starts. And, and we have a huge barrier to overcome. And this relates to somebody else's question earlier. But I did something a couple of years ago that had a profound impact on me. It took two seconds, I went to Wikipedia. I looked at the list of the richest companies in the world on Wikipedia. Have you ever done that? And then I looked at how many of those companies got their wealth either entirely or mostly from either extracting, selling, or using fossil fuels. At the top of the list was Walmart, and Walmart is going to be 50% clean energy by 2025. Number 11 was Apple, and Apple is already 100% clean energy, and they're, go- they're decarbonizing the supply chain. But in between, <laughs> it was all fossil fuels. So, the challenge we have is not just the governments. The challenge we have is that the money and the power in this world rests in the hands of corporations who have every vested interest in maintaining our addiction to it as long as possible, because every year that goes by, they'll make more money. And that's why it's so important for kids to grow up, to raise their voices, to vote, to tell people, I am not going to vote for you if you say
0: this. Thank you. That's Catherine Hayhoe, director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University and the recipient of the 2018 Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Science Communication. Greg Dalton's other guest today was Noah Diffenbaugh, professor in earth system science and senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more.
2: Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.